Romans 8.28 And we hope, excuse me, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. I mentioned to you last week that we are starting... If you're a visitor here today, I'll tell you, last week we started a series of sermons on Romans 8.28-30. through 30, Just these three verses. I still don't know how many messages we're finally going to have. This is the second. God helping us. We're not going to dive into the second message. I love Romans. This has been the deepest and most profitable study I have ever done in the Bible in my life. And I'm really thankful that there's a whole lot of the book left before we finally get to the end. Now last week we considered six observations that specifically had to do with verse 28. We are not moving out of verse 28 even today. This week I have five points again that refer to 8.28 and I introduce each of them with a question. So here's the first one. Is Romans 8.28 a promise? Is it a promise? Listen to it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Is it a promise? If, is someone in this verse actually promising to work all things together for good to those who love God? Or is this just an observation that somehow all things do work together for the good of those who love God? Is this a promise? Or is this just a statement? Now look, how you answer this question really depends on who you hear speaking when you hear these words. Look, if you take these words as only the words of a man, then this probably seems like nothing more than a man making the observation that in his estimation for those who love God, all things seem to somehow always work out for good. You might be thinking to yourself, of course I hear a man speaking in these words. The Apostle Paul was a man, wasn't he? These are his words, aren't they? But listen to me. 
This first question I ask you is not an empty one. It's not for no use here. Listen to me. There's more here than that. There's another voice here. You know what? Sometimes we need to just stop. I'm including Christians in this. You Christians here. Sometimes we just need to stop in our tracks and really let this sink in. Sometimes we need to remember what it is that we hold in our hands. Look, when you have this book, it's not like having a newspaper in your hand. It's not like having a dictionary in your hand. It's not like having the latest novel. There's something altogether different about this book. And you know what? Sometimes... It does us really good to just let that sink in. These are not simply, just simply the musings and fabrications of men. We don't want to play around with the precious words as though they're ordinary and commonplace. These are the words of the living God. Men and women have died. Possessing this, they have died to own this, they have died to distribute this, they have died to translate this, and they have died to print this. Our brothers and sisters who have gone before us have shed their blood for this book. Not because it's like the Encyclopedia Britannica. They've done so because this is the Holy Word of God. The church of Jesus Christ possesses a book that is unlike any other book that has ever been written. Romans 8.28 is not just the mere observation of a man. There's a deeper glory here. Listen. Why is it such a huge deal for the Falao tribe to have the Bible in their own language? It's that they might hear God speak to them. All Scripture. You know, I know we know this. I know we've heard this. But sometimes we need to just be still and know that all Scripture is according to the inspired apostle in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is god Breathed. See, how does that happen? Peter tells us, 2 Peter 1.21, holy men of God, Paul being one of those holy men, were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit worked upon men in such a way as to bring forth words that convey the very mind of God. You know what? Romans 8.28 is God-breathed. You just throw your Bible around. You just throw it on the, the floor of the car. Is that how you treat this book? Look, there's nothing holy about the leather. There's nothing, there's nothing innately sacred about this ink 
and, and this paper. But on it are printed words that come from the very heart of God. And for that reason, we should cherish this. Romans 8.28 isn't just some flippant remark made by a guy that looks out at humanity and says, well, you know what? In my estimation and observation, I've kind of observed that those that love God, yeah, things seem to work out good for them. Listen, folks. When all I hear in Romans 8.28 is a man, then it really isn't a promise. Because you know what? The man who speaks this can't work all things together for my good. He doesn't have the ability to do it. But I'll tell you this. When you hear the voice of God in this, that's a whole other thing. Then it has promise written all over it. When God looks you in the face and says, all things work together for your good. He's not just making an observation. He's saying, they will work out for your good because I'm going to make them work out for your good. You have God's Word on the matter, folks. Look, I just want this to be precious to you. Yes, it's a promise. A promise right from the mouth of God. Many of our Bibleless foal brothers and sisters, they can't read that promise for themselves. You ever read about our brothers and sisters who have gone before? That have handed around bits and pieces of the New Testament? Communities and cultures and societies where the Christians have only had scraps and fragments and they were treasured highly. Don't take this word for granted. I know what I say right now doesn't just have to do with Romans 8.28. But when you hear those words, all things work together for good to them that love God. Realize what voice says that. Don't take the word for granted. That's the first question. Second question. Here it is. Is Romans 8.28 a promise for all people? Now, if you were here last week and you've got a bit of a memory, you know I dealt with this last week. Clearly, everyone can see it. I mean, all you have to do is open your Bibles, 828. You read it right there. Clearly, everyone can see the promise is only for those who love God. Those who are called according to His purpose. Now, let's be absolutely clear about something. If you're visiting here today, I want you to be clear about something. I think reg regular visitors and those who are members of this church they already know this. They're fairly clear on this. If not, then we'll, for the sake of remembrance, I'll say it again. But if you're visiting here today, I want you to know something. Basically, when you come into this place, our agenda is not to tell you what we believe, but to tell you what we find in the Word of God. That's our agenda. This is what matters. Remember the first point here, folks. This is God's Word. This is God's church. 
And by the authority of His Word, we proclaim truth. We don't make it up. But I want you to be absolutely clear about something. When we set forth this Word, this Word teaches something. When it comes to the promises of God, like you have in Romans 8.28, you are always either included or excluded. Paul couldn't be clear about this. You are either in the in crowd or you are in the out crowd. It's either one or the other. There are only two groups of people in this world. There is no middle ground. There are no halfway categories. That's how it is with all God's promises of good. They are made specifically and exclusively for God's children. Now you hear this, Christianity is absolutely and fundamentally exclusive. Now some were here last week trying to argue the case that all men are children of God. Do you see what that is? It's an effort to put all men in the same crowd. It's a deception that's meant to dull the clear-cut distinctions between the lost and the saved. Look, the devil wants all men to relax. He wants them to think they're okay. He wants them to feel secure. He does not want them to sense their alienation to God. He does not want men to know how separated they are from Christ. Why? Lest they panic. Lest they get concerned. Are all people children of God? Certainly the Apostle John didn't think so. 1 John 3.10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. How, John? How can you tell them apart? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Do you know what the major characteristic of those that are children of God is? They practice righteousness. Major characteristic of those who are children of the devil? They do not practice righteousness. So you have children of God, you have children of the devil. Are they all the same? No. Clear-cut distinction. You know what? Ephesians 5.8, you have children of light. Ephesians 2.3, children of wrath. Clear-cut. Romans 8.14, sons of God. Ephesians 2.2, sons of disobedience. Again, it's clear. There are those who are in the Spirit, those who are in the flesh. Romans 8, 9. Those who are on the narrow way that leads to light, those on the broad way that leads to destruction. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. There are those alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 5. Those dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 1. There are those under grace. Those under law. Romans 6, 14. There are those in Christ. Those separated from Christ having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Does the Bible teach that all men are the same? Look, it is an exclusive religion, Christianity. But wait, it's not that we don't invite all men to come. But it's that it only includes those who do come. If you don't come to Christ, if you don't submit to Him, if you don't repent to Him, don't think you're in the in crowd. You're not. You're outside. You're outside Christ. You're separated from Christ. You have no hope in this world. You're without God in this world. 
You are not a child of God. You are a son of disobedience. And you are a child of wrath. And none of the promises of good of God are for you. None. Oh, He may show you kindness right now, but the Bible guarantees you one day that kindness is going to come back and work wrath for you. If you don't believe that, you just read Romans chapter 2. It says that. Now look, we don't make any qualms about that here. We're not embarrassed about that here. and We don't want to hide it from anybody. Because it's truth. Look, if we love your soul, we're going to tell you the truth. We're not going to gloss this thing over. We need to say how it is. And look, the reason all are not children of God is precisely because you do not become a child of God simply by being born physically into this world and being a human being. How then do you become a child of God? Listen, Galatians 3.26 In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. It's my faith in Jesus Christ. John in his Gospel says something very similar to this. But to all who did receive Him who believed in His name He gave the right to become the children of God. None have the right of becoming a child of God. Nor of calling themselves a child of God. Nor of thinking themselves accepted by God. Nor of believing themselves to be right with God unless or until they look outside themselves in faith to Christ the Savior. None others. That's where children of God come from. And it's only the children that love their Father. And this promise in Romans 8.28 is only for them. Christ is always the vital link between us and the promises of God. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 1.20 All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. You can take all the good and glorious promises of God found anywhere in the whole Bible and stamp yes in Christ over the top of every one of them. You ask, but pastor, do all things work together for my good? Yes, in Christ. And no other place. Only right there. This isn't about whether you've loved God enough or been good enough or even trusted and obeyed Enough. This isn't about whether you felt the evil of your sin enough. This isn't about whether you've repented enough or grieved enough or felt sorry enough for your wickedness or whether you've been humbled enough or learned enough doctrine, been able to understand everything. This is about being in Christ by faith. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Is that enough for you? Faith in Christ is the one key that unlocks every single promise of God. Here's the third question. Is Romans 8.28 a problem to you? Do you ever wrestle with how God can promise anyone good? Probably not. 
For most people, the answer to that question is extremely easy. The answer is no. And we deal with people out here in the streets. We deal with people at Sutton Homes. We picked up a blind guy the other day to try to help him. He was a con artist. Look, if, if we asked most of these people, do you ever wrestle with how God can be kind to anybody, how he can ever be good to anybody, how he can ever be merciful to anybody? No, it doesn't even enter their mind that God doing good to men is surrounded by unfathomable problems. People tend to be far more surprised and confused when God withholds good from men. They're surprised when all people are not counted as children of God. I mean, that's what the people here last week were saying. I mean, that's what surprises them. That's, that's the stumbling block for them. You see what I'm saying here? Men have great difficulty and great consternation that all men are not the privileged objects of God's promises. But few people seem to lose sleep over how a good and righteous and holy God can promise good to bad people. It should never be nearly so unbelievable to us that God leaves some people out of His promises and out of His family as that God actually takes any foul, hell-deserving wretch and commits Himself to work for the good of that person. That's the greater miracle by far. Men get all uptight when Christianity is defined in these narrow terms because they feel left out. They get uptight because they feel that God is obligated somehow to include them. The whole mindset... Look. This whole mindset comes up out of a terribly distorted preoccupation with self. Here's the problem. By nature, we're consumed with our good. We're consumed with ourselves. We're selfish, self-centered, self-pleasing, self-exalting. We're just self-absorbed. We make much of ourselves. And look, not only are we like that, we tend to imagine God is the same way. We take Him to be absorbed with us as well. We want a God who thinks little of our sin and much of us. So we imagine a God who's man-centered. Why? Because we're man-centered. This is the world's way of viewing God and all that God does. It's a mindset that begins with the thinking that man is the basic and fundamental reality of all the universe. There's this assumption that man deserves good. He has his needs, he has his rights, and he deserves to be treated by God and by others with respect and dignity and honor. Men interpret the world and they interpret God by their own sense of self-importance. And man and his rights and his needs Become the measure of all things. And you know what happens? People with this man 
centered mindset rush into passages like Romans 8.28. And they read about God working all things together for good. And you know what happens? They read this and they think, really no big deal. Seems perfectly legitimate to me. I pretty much expected that of God. Of course God would work everything together for my good. Of course God is concerned about me. By nature we value ourselves above all else, so we just expect God values us more than anything else. Of course He would do good for us. Of course He would send His only begotten, most dearly beloved Son to die for me. I mean, most men would not even be able to fathom God not doing that. After all, we're central in the universe and God just sort of orbits around us, making sure our good, our rights, our needs are all taken care of. Look, you know how all of you know that's true? Because you're either lost and that's the way you think right now, or you were lost and that's how you thought then. And if your mind's been changed, if your attitude is different, if you've been shown that you're not the center of this universe, it's by the grace of God only. When you come to this Bible in reality, not in the fictions of men's mind, but when you come to this Bible, you quickly discovered that it is mainly concerned not about us, but about God. The Bible hits us square between the eyes with the reality that sin is the most defiling, wicked, heinous monstrosity that ever entered the universe. Not because of how it affects man. Not because it robs us of good. Not because it brings us pain and suffering. Not because it puts us in danger of hell. Be because of how it dishonors God. Listen, the Bible really crushes our view of self-importance right underfoot. It makes God all important. It rips through our man-centeredness, folks. Listen, the deepest problem with Romans 8.28 is virtually incomprehensible to most people. The question of the ages isn't how God can pass over certain people and not do them good and not call them His children. The deepest problem with Romans 8.28 is how God can ever show the least kindness to any sinner. That's what the cross is all about. Don't you realize that each of God's promises has been purchased with blood? There was a terribly high price paid to make Romans 8.28 possible. If God works all things together for your good, it's not because you are so irresistibly attractive and valuable to God. But it's because the Father of glory slaughtered His only begotten Son and crushed Him beneath almighty wrath. And you remember this, the cross of Christ is not a testimony at all 
to your great virtue and value and worth. It's a testimony to your great wickedness and depravity. It's a staggering testimony to the greatness of God's love for this world. Not because you're lovable. It's a testimony to the vastness of His love because when you were absolutely unlovable, He loved. You see, everything about this is not to show us that we are something. Everything about this shows us how worthless, what scum we are as men. And how great that love of God is. And how great that sacrifice of Christ is. And how great such promises as this ought to amaze us. They ought to knock us off our feet. We ought to be surprised. We ought to weep. We ought to be thankful. We ought to show forth gratitude, folks. If you could see yourself as a sinner for what you really are and how heinous and how absolutely disgusting and defiled you are, this promise would just make you overwhelmed with joy. That God should reach out to such a pathetic wretch as you and determine to do any good whatsoever. Here's the fourth question. If God promises that all things will work together for my good, what must be true of God for Him to be able to make such a promise? Or let me turn it around. If it's God's will and expressed purpose that all things work out for my good, what would have to be true for something not to work out for my good? I mean, if God says, it's all working out for your good, and then something doesn't work out for good, what would have to be true of God? Either one, He's a liar, or two, He really meant well. He didn't really lie. He just didn't have the ability to make happen what He promised. Right? Either he's a liar or he's not sovereign. He's not totally in control of the whole deal. Right? I mean, so as soon as you catch a promise made of this caliber, there's something that ought to jump right off the pages. I mean, this text literally thunders with sovereignty, does it not? For God to be able to promise all things work together for my good every single time, there can only be one conclusion. He must be in control of absolutely everything. Daniel says, He does according to His will. The psalmist says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In Isaiah, God says, I will accomplish all my purpose. Paul says in Romans 9.19, Who can resist His will? A great multitude in Revelation cry out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. I guarantee you this, folks. When someone is almighty, you can't find anything that is more mighty. So when the Almighty promises to work all things together for your good, Bank on it. It's going to happen. It's a done deal. And remember this. Remember this. 
the main thing that Paul has in mind, that God works out for the Christian's good, is suffering. Why do I say that? Why do I I mean, doesn't it say all things? If it says all things, how come I say, well, it primarily is dealing and the emphasis has to do with suffering? I'll tell you why I say that. Remember the context. In verse 17, there's suffering. Suffering with Christ. In verse 18, there's sufferings. The sufferings of this present time. In verse 20, there's futility in this universe of which we are part. In verse 22, there's groaning. Back one in verse 21, there's bondage to decay. Our bodies are part of that bondage to decay, folks. In verse 26, there's more groaning. In verse 35, there's tribulation. There's distress. There's persecution. There's famine. There's nakedness. There's danger. There's sword. In verse 36, there's killing and slaughter. The whole context around 828 is one big picture of pain and suffering and distress. Listen, when it says in verse 31, who can be against us? When it says in verse 35, who can separate us? When it says in verse 34, who is there to condemn? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge? Paul doesn't mean that there isn't anyone or anything against us, trying to separate us, trying to condemn us, trying to destroy us. The whole point is, there are indeed many enemies. There are many difficulties. There are many trials. But God will never let them come against us in a way that they will harm us. They can't be against us to do us harm. God uses every one of them to bring about my good. Now look, it's important that you understand something very clearly here. When Paul says that God works all things, like pain and suffering and persecution, tribulation, distress, together for the good of those who love God, he's not saying that God simply responds when bad things come. And then he comes along after the fact, tries to figure out how to turn them for good once they happen. Some believe that God does not design the hard things in our lives. He only responds when they come by using them for my good after they happen. In other words, He doesn't really have anything to do with cancer. He really doesn't have anything to do with hurricanes. He's just as surprised by them as we are. But once they occur, He figures out how to use them for the good of His children. Now, if that's what you think, I want to strongly encourage you not to think like that. You see, the Bible teaches everywhere that God doesn't just respond. He initiates. He actually orchestrates all things and purposely designs and ordains and plans even the bad things ahead of time. For the specific purpose of bringing about the Christian's good from them. When cancer comes, it isn't that God just responds by figuring out how to use it for good. He actually sends the cancer. Brother Charles had prostate cancer. 
Ruby's sister had breast cancer. God didn't just react and respond once it was discovered. He actually gave them the cancer. See, I don't believe that. That doesn't fit with what I believe. Well, okay, I, I, I understand that. There's a lot of times we don't believe just what we ought to believe. But look, if I can show you that this is what the Bible believes, then it does you well to change what you believe. I mean, we all have to submit ourselves and say, I do, you do. I mean, none of us are excluded here. We have to submit ourselves to this. Look, God gave Charles cancer. God gave Mida cancer. You know how I know that? In Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I make well-being and create calamity. He creates it. He doesn't just respond to it. He creates it. I am the Lord who does all these things. When people persecute God's children, God's in that. Hardships, He designs them. Calamities, they come from His hand. Don't you see, brethren? God's great design in all this is to set forth the wonder of His wisdom. Look, it does us no good to say that God is sovereign after the tragedy, but not before it. I mean, what in the world do we gain from saying that? If you tell me God can't control whether or not the tragedy comes in the first place, what sort of confidence should I have that He's able to control the consequences after the fact. I mean, if you tell me God is just as grieved and surprised by calamity as we are, how do I know that when the results turn out for bad, He won't be just as surprised and grieved? I mean, you, you, you didn't gain nothing by going there. Listen, when Paul had a thorn in the flesh, he didn't think to himself, well, God had nothing to do with this, so there's no sense to pray to Him at all, but just pray, God, work it out for your good somehow. He said, God, take the thorn away. And, and the Lord didn't come back and say, well, you see, Paul, I can't. I really had nothing to do with that. He said, no. You know what that implied? I gave it to you. I meant it. You'd have it. But I'm working it out for your good. And Paul realized that, did he not? Because when he was weak, Christ showed forth through him in strength. You see, it worked out for his good. How? He said, God gave it to me to humble me. Look, the devil comes along and torments Job. God didn't just look at that and say, okay, now I've got to respond and somehow bring some good out of this for Job. Listen, folks devil couldn't do that without permission. He went to God and said, yeah, I see him. Actually, God said to him, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered him? God had been. And God thought, you know, I'll show my work to sustain faith in the midst of the worst onslaughts. Satan, come here. You considered him? Okay, go have your way with him. He had to get permission. No different than he had to get permission to sift Peter. Which, by the way, he was given. But did that do Peter good? Yeah. 
I mean, he was a pretty proud character before that happened, right? He got sifted. He denied the Lord three times. After that, Peter's a different guy. Was it for his good? Yep. Was it designed by God? You better believe it. Absolutely. I take Jonah. Did God say, oh man, my, my, my prophet over here, he's disobeying me. Hey, look over there, there's a storm. I can use that for my good. Don't you believe it for a second. You ever opened your Bibles to Job and read chapter 35? God, as He rebukes Job, says, the lightning, the storehouses of the hail, the wind, I mean, He calls them forth. They are at His beck and call. God says, wind, blow! And it blows. He says, lightning, strike! And it strikes. Rain, fall! And it falls. This whole creation under heaven and in heaven and under earth, folks, it is in His power. It is in His control. He uses it and He wields it as He will. He is absolutely and ultimately sovereign in every single thing. When Joseph's brothers throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, later on, he's down there in Egypt and famine comes Word says God sent that famine. He didn't just use it. He sent it. They meant it for evil and God meant it for good. God does all these things. The greatest example of this in all the Bible is the cross of Jesus Christ. You think those wicked lawless men rose up and killed the anointed servant of God, Jesus Christ, and then God, after the fact, just figured out how to make it into good? I'll tell you what, Acts 4.28 doesn't say that. It says God was right there. It says God was in this. It says this was all done according to the predestinated plan of God. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up to crucifixion and death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God didn't just bring good out of the evil and suffering of the cross. He actually laid the plans before it happened. He caused it to happen. While it was happening, He devised it from beginning to ending so that nothing but good would come out of it for all who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Don't you see, beloved? It was God's designed purpose that Christ should suffer. And it's been appointed to you not only to believe, but to suffer with Christ for Christ's sake. Now this just brings me to one short final question. I need to ask you Christians one question. If the promise of Romans 8.28 guarantees that no matter what, Almighty God works all things out for your good, what should that confidence lead you to do? I can remember Brother Pat Horner making a comment something like this. We 
are invincible until that moment when our time here is through. You know something? Romans 8.28 should stir the same kind of thoughts. When I come to my front door every day and prepare to step out into this world, the world looks a whole lot different when I have a confidence that I am invincibly preserved from anything working against me for bad. Trevor Johnson's in-laws, some of you may not know this, they wouldn't speak to him when they learned he would be taking their daughters to New Guinea. As though what? As though harm might come to her? What the world looks at is foolish risks and unwise hazards for Christ's sake and the sake of the Gospel are only paths to good for the child of God. This promise screams at us to take risks. It screams at us to venture all of it for the Gospel's sake. I will never be a loser. I will never be defeated. I can go to the dangerous place. I can do the hard thing. I can lay it all out there on the line. And it's only going to work for my good every single time. I mean, who are the people that draw back? That cower in the corner? That take refuge? You do that when you fear that something might go wrong. You fear something might be lost. I've read somewhere before about reckless abandon for Christ. I don't know who said that. It just came to my mind when I was doing this point. Romans 8.28 is the fuel for fanatical Christianity. Why not? You answer me that. We only hesitate and hide when we have something to lose. What do you have to lose? You, child of God, have everything game. Amen. You're dismissed.